Let's read together. John, the Gospel of John, chapter, 30, chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> On the last day of the feast, that's the Feast of Booths, we'll talk about in a minute. The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But he's glorified now, is he not? And let's pray and ask the glorified reigning King of Heaven to open our hearts to receive these living waters of His own Holy Spirit. King Jesus, we ask that You would sway, take, take sway and rule of us now as we hear Your Word. Help us to come to You thirsty and receive the satisfaction for our souls and receive the cleansing for our sin and receive the refreshment that will enable us and energize us to go about Your mission in this world. And we pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Hope my voice holds up. I was running yesterday in the cold weather, and I just hope it stays with you for at least a couple hours as I preach today. Amen? Come on. A couple hours? Wow, you guys are really gullible. Okay. Some of us would say we have a drinking problem. Literally, we would, right? Some of us would admit it right now, Chris. Thank you for your honesty. Others of us have other addictions of our choosing. We're constantly trying to feed that emptiness inside, that loneliness, that depression with all sorts of things. Could be work. You could be a workaholic trying to fill that void. Could be food. May not be just like overeating and in a gluttony, but it might be only wanting the best, most expensive food. Food's not. Maybe it's entertainment. Trying to always comfort yourself with entertainment. Maybe it's just the number of likes you get on Facebook. You just are a junkie for other people's approval. Maybe it's just yourself, plain and simple. You're just addicted to thinking about yourself, looking at yourself, taking selfies, literally. Just what is the things that you thirst for. We all have a drinking problem of some sort. I'm not saying it's alcoholism for all of us. I'm saying that we all are thirsty and hungry for something deep and significant that we just can't find. Recently, someone came to me for counsel, and he's very unsatisfied in life. He's very thirsty for a solution. And <clears throat> he gave me this laundry list, this onslaught of problems that he's been experiencing wave after wave of trial in his life, his mother died two years ago, <clears throat> his stepfather, and he had been living together, <clears throat> and in the chaos that his mom's death created, he said he started having verbal and physical altercations with his father-in-law, and he got kicked out of the apartment. Last week, he was in a car accident, totaled his car, the insurance money that's coming in will go right back out to pay for the money he still owed on the car, he won't see any of that money for buying a new car, so he's broken without a vehicle to get to work. His job told him that he had no business coming to work last week because he was injured and they didn't want the 
liability of that. So they said, don't come into work this week, which means he didn't get the paycheck, which means he can't pay for his new apartment now that he got kicked out of the other one, and he can't buy a new car. He's in trouble. And to top it all off, he said, my girlfriend broke up with me in August. And he said, what do I do? Heavy drinking wasn't working for him, he said. He went to church after not going for a long time, and he said the church that Sunday was talking about politics, which didn't help any. He said, I've been reading about Buddhism, trying to find out if meditation from the Eastern philosophy can help me. And I tried to help walk him through where that might go. He said, well, you know, I don't know if you understand Buddhism, but here's how I've understood it, and I confirmed with some research just to make sure that I was telling him correctly that Buddhism explains suffering in this way. Suffering is the root of your selfish desires and ignorance about how the world is really set up. At the end, it's rooted in Hinduism, which is saying that all things are an illusion, including suffering. The remedy for suffering is to stop desiring the good things of this world and learn to detach yourself, that means separate yourself, from your self-cravings. Learn to ignore your soul's thirst. Buddha would have said, and I, I feel like I should sit to say this, you know, Get more comfortable this way. Who would have said it like this? If you're dying of thirst, the solution isn't to find water and drink. The solution is to lose your thirst. If Buddhist kids came in and said, Dad, I'm thirsty. I want some Sprite. And I saw a commercial that says, Obey your thirst. Brilliant marketing. I want some Sprite. Who would say then? This is an illusion, this thirst that you're having. Have a sippy cup of self-control, my child. That's all you need. Self-denial. That's what this is all about. <laughs> Dad, I fell off the slide and straight my knee. My child, detach yourself from your desire for a pain-free playground experience. Separate your mind from the illusion of this world and its suffering. And don't get any bloody intentions. I'll take your money for this. Buddhism says, hey, hey buddy, you lost your girlfriend and wrecked your car and can't pay for your apartment, all these things going on in your life, you lost your mother. You know what, your suffering is ultimately an illusion. The answer to your suffering is to stop wanting to be comfortable. Just turn off that brain circuitry which desires good things and relationships included in that and try to ignore this constant thirst and hunger in your soul. Let's meditate on that. Let's try to get into that higher state of mind and reach that nirvana of the soul. But Jesus teaches us today in John 7 something very different. He says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and I will satisfy your thirst and your cravings and your addictions for something different than what this world is giving you. C.S. Lewis said it like this, our problem is not that our cravings are too strong, but our cravings are too weak, and we're far too easily satisfied with the shallow and shadowy things of the world. We need something more substantial, and we need to dive deep into what we really need and pursue it with all our hearts and all of our thirsts and hungers. We need to recognize that this world has something that can satisfy us for a moment, but only God can satisfy us in the deepest way that our souls desire. The problem for my friend is not that he's thirsty or not that he's suffering, the problem is that, not that he needs to ignore that thirst or learn to dull it with alcohol or even religion. 
The problem is that he's, he needs to listen to his thirst, not obey his thirst. He doesn't need to obey his thirst, unlike what the marketers of Sprite, so to say. He needs to, he needs to train his thirst and take his thirst to the only satisfying waters of Jesus Christ. We have a drinking problem. Anybody want to admit that with Chris and me today? Can you say, I do, if you have a drinking problem? I have a thirst problem. I have a, a problem with trying to find satisfaction in something that won't satisfy me. Am I, are we the only ones? Anybody else want to say, I do? You want to raise your hand? Show of hands. Who has a drinking problem in here? Well, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, John 7, 37, and drink. Let's do that now. Let's, let's cover the word and drink from it. The chapter that we're in is a long chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to give you the context of chapter 7, the context of this thirst that Jesus calls us to, to satisfy ourselves in him. It was, according to verse 1, Jesus is in Galilee and he's about to, he's about to go to Jerusalem uh, because they were having one of their great feasts, the Jews, the, food, the Feast of Booths, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkoth in Hebrew. And uh, the Feast of Booths was a time that we just experienced here in, in Chicago, because on the lunar moon cycle, it usually falls in September or October, and uh, some of our friends nearby, you might have seen it if you're a university student, setting up uh, little makeshift structures, little booths, using um, branches and twigs, or maybe today they might use some cloth, and they set up like a little hut out in the middle of a field, or in someone's front yard perhaps, and it celebrates the feast of ingathering harvest. It's, it's not the harvest for wheat in this season, but it's the harvest for grapes and olives in Israel. And so the Jews were called once a year to celebrate the Feast of Booths. They were saying, Lord, we're grateful for the harvest, and we're ready for your return when the Messiah will harvest souls. He will harvest the world. He will come and gather his people in to the storehouse. Now, notice the themes already of celebrating the good, good gifts of God, not saying, I shouldn't want good gifts and seek them with my desires. I should learn to detach myself from the good things that I crave. Jesus comes and shows us in this text how he is the fulfillment of this feast, how he is the fulfillment of this harvest, how he transposes into a higher key the people who gathered in Jerusalem that day and said, we're coming to celebrate the grain and the wine and the good things you've given us, and to say, You'll only satisfy your souls ultimately in me. And these good gifts I've given you are just a hint, just a foretaste, just to whet your appetite. Now Jesus' brothers who were living around him, think of James, the half-brother of Jesus that wrote the book of James. His brothers at this time, the, the text tells us, if you look at the story with me, um, in verses 3 and following, his brothers said to him, hey, let's go to Judea so that we can go to the feast and you can show the world what you're doing, these great works you're doing, these miracles, Jesus. I and mean, we've known you your whole life, Jesus, and we're family. Let's go to the feast together. Jesus says, nah, I'm not going to go this time. I'll catch up with you guys later. says that um, in verse 8. You, you go on ahead, guys. You go on ahead, brothers, sisters. It's not yet time for me to go. And the brothers were saying, but Jesus, we know you better than anybody. I mean, we're family. Don't you love it when family tells you what to do? When family who says... Let me give you some advice. This is what you need to do. And it may not be biblical. It may not be what you want to do. But you're, they're family. So you've got to listen to them. And they expect you to do what they say. This is what's happening with Jesus. Let's go to the feast. Jesus, we've got a plan for your life. We've seen the power. We want some prosperity perhaps out of it. I'm not sure what their motives were exactly. 
But their motives were less than noble because it says they had not yet put their faith in him at this point. They had not yet put saving faith in their brother, Jesus Christ. And later some of them would believe, but right now they have shallower motives. And so they're saying, for whatever reason, let's go to the feast. You can show off, you know, the greatest showman. You can be that guy. You can have a crowd. You can be a miracle man, a prophet, a sugar daddy, whatever you want to call it. We want you to go and get in front of the cameras, and we have a plan. Here's how we're going to get the word out. You're going to get your own website. A social media campaign must start. You're going to find a publishing house. You're going to build big, bold, colorful murals on the side of urban buildings. You're going to fly a plane dragging a banner across the sky during the festival. You're going to, of course, buy some airtime for Super Bowl commercials. This is how we're going to do it, Jesus. We're going to get you out there. This is how it's going to work. Jesus says, no, it's not yet my time. These brothers were far too easily satisfied. They were just looking at miracles like multiplying the bread and the fish and saying, we want more of that. They were satisfied with simply the things of the world, which are good gifts, but can never truly satisfy the soul's cravings. And so Jesus says, no, it's not yet my time. Three times in this passage, this phrase, it's not yet my time, or not yet his time, is, is found. Verse 6, verse 30, and verse 39. What does Jesus mean when he says, it's not yet my time? Because then he does show up on the last day of the feast. Well, this is a code word in the Gospel of John. Jesus' hour or Jesus' time. It's a code word, which means I'm not yet ready to be crucified, risen, and ascended back into glory. That's what it means. The hour of Jesus meant his sufferings and death and resurrection and his ascension back to his eternal rule and reign in heaven. And so when he says, my time has not yet come, what he's saying is, I'm not just here to give bread to the world. I'm here to give my life to the world as the true bread from heaven, like he said in chapter 6. We looked at that the past two weeks. I give my life as the bread of the world, and if you eat of me, you will live. If you drink of me and the living waters, you will what? Live. Live. Well, his brothers weren't satisfied. The authorities and the other Jewish crowds weren't really satisfied. If you continue reading the story, it shows us that people were confused about Jesus. The authorities were the people in power. They were the religious leaders who were rather on the liberal side, theologically. They didn't believe necessarily in miracles, or they didn't believe in some of the things that uh, people would have trouble believing today about the Bible, like the resurrection from the dead eternal life, things like this. Some of them disagreed, even as Jewish people. And so the authorities who were in power, the Sadducees, the elite, they were pretty much putting like a bounty out on Jesus' head. A warrant out for his arrest. A wanted poster hung all over the region. You could think of it as Jesus. If you can get him to stop talking, you'll, you'll be put in power. We'll give you a place at the table. If you can't get him to stop talking, arrest him. Detain him. Let's lock him up and force him to stop talking because we don't want to lose power because he's gathering crowds around him with all these miracles, as they would think of it as magic tricks probably, and we don't want to lose our power and authority. And the people, the common people, were so afraid of what the authorities were saying that the text tells us the people spoke in hushed tones and silent whispers and corners and shadows because they didn't want to be arrested themselves. Does that sound familiar? The elite telling the uneducated masses, stop talking about Jesus. Jesus has a way of annoying the elites. And he has a way of delighting the oppressed, the downcast. And 
They're all confused, though, at this point. Uh, they even say in verse 15, his, his teachings have astonished them. They go to send the temple authorities, the, the, basically the, the police, the thought police, they send them to arrest Jesus for his teaching, and they come back empty-handed without Jesus. Why didn't you arrest him? We gave you all the right tools, you know. You had your mace, your pepper spray. You had your tasers. You had your glocks. Wait, you have handcuffs. You, this, is a, this is a man of peace. How didn't you just bring him in and book him? What happened? Well, what happened was, verse 15, he spoke like a, no other man we've ever heard before. He has authority in his teaching like we've never heard before. The word of Jesus was so powerful that the police couldn't even arrest him. And they say, how did a man of such common ancestry get such learning? They're confused. He's never even studied, they say in verse 15. That means he hasn't studied the Torah, the law. He hasn't been to the great schools. He hasn't been to the University of Chicago. We know that. So how in the world is he teaching like this with such precision and depth and comprehensive wisdom? Well... They said the same things as Peter and John in Acts chapter 5. They said these are unschooled, ordinary men. That's a really nice translation. The literal translation from the Greek is, these are illiterate idiots. I'm not making this up. This is what the Greek is. Agramatos. They don't know their grammar. Idiotes. You can hear it in that, can't you? Illiterate idiots. That's what they were saying about Jesus and John and Peter. These men haven't been to school, but, but you know, don't we know in Living Hope Church that it's not just the smart kids that get to go to the best schools who are educated? Don't we know that some of us have life experience that takes not a, a school admissions office or counselor or professor or a degree on the wall to give you? Don't you know that some of us have been schooled in the school of suffering and, and our faith has been refined in fire and that we, we've gone to the school of hard knocks and, and this is the school of the disciples. The experience of the Holy Spirit taking them through persecutions and studying the Word of God, and they spoke with eloquence and with power, and so did Jesus. And Jesus says in his teaching in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. So he gives you the qualifications for becoming a school in his school of discipleship. If you do the will of God, if you seek to do God's will, then you will know. You'll have knowledge. You'll have the education you need. Did you catch that? He doesn't just say, if you study, you'll know. What does he say? Tell me. Verse 17. It's not just if you study and read, you'll have knowledge. What does he say? you have your Bibles open? What does he say in verse 17? What's the prerequisite class for knowing God and his, his teaching? It's true. Choosing to do His will. Choosing. You have to choose to yield yourself to God. You have to commit to Him. It's an act of the will that will then open up doors of knowledge and insight and education in spiritual matters. Now, some people are committed to critiquing the Bible when they read it. That's their commitment. I will find an error in this book if it's the last thing I do. I will not believe until I've turned over every single stone and I will not commit myself until I'm completely satisfied and I've got a long checklist of the requirements that God's Word must meet. But God says, if you want to know my truth, you must commit yourself to me. 
Or as Augustine would say, believe in order to understand. Now, how do you believe something you don't know about? I'm not asking you to blindly believe. I'm saying, do your research, but do what the philosophers call suspend judgment. Take your judgment and your criticisms and your, your critique of God and hold on to that for a while. Suspend it. Just put it on the back burner and come with an open mind and heart. Come with a, a willingness to commit if it leads you into the truth. Be willing to go where it leads you. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will know, she will know the truth. I'm an army chaplain. That's why my hair looks so short today. Because when I don't cut it like this, they, they get on to me. They say, chaplain, your hair is touching your ears. So yesterday I had to go in and uh, you know, be a chaplain, be a pastor to the soldiers. And um, a lot of people came and told me their problems. And I'm excited to be there with many opportunities. And, and a part of my mission is um, not to get top secret information. That's not a part of my mission. I don't even get to carry a weapon. But some people, you know, secret agents, think of them, they get the mission, top secret, can't share it with anyone. Do you think that that mission is going to be disseminated and distributed just to the masses of people in the world? Hey, here's what we're doing, let's announce what we're doing, here's our secret mission. Of course not. Why? Because they're not committed to the mission. They don't get to know the mission because they're not committed to it. They're not in, inducted into it. They're not sold and, and bound to it by oath. God says, do you want to know the secrets of my kingdom? Do you want to know the secrets of revelation that will change your life? You need to commit to the mission. And then I will begin sharing things with you that will change you and change the world around you. This is my mission. Does that make sense? Okay. But something deeper is going on here besides just an act of the will. If you choose to do God's will, you will know. But there's something deeper. The will... The act of choosing God rests on something deeper still. You know what that is? That's our text today. John 7, 37-39. It's the desires. It's the thirst and the hunger. Jesus says there's something deeper than your will. It's what you're thirsty for. I've tried to choose what's right. I've tried to choose to be a good Christian. Man, I've tried to obey God. Often I fail. But it's when my desires begin to engage with God. When God begins to stir my desires and my heart at the level of my affections and my, my wants, that's when my will follows along and changes with it. I can't force you guys to choose Jesus, but I'm trying to entice you. If you're thirsty, come to Him and just taste of Him and drink of Him and you'll be satisfied and your will will want to follow this good and loving and satisfying Savior. So let's look at this problem that we have, that we're all thirsty, and we all have a drinking problem. And let's look at this Jesus who meets us at our desire level. On this greatest day of the feast, we read in chapter 7, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus showed up. Now, let's talk about the feast. Let me give you a little bit of history about the feast, okay? A little history about thirsty people in the Jewish context. Seven days the Feast of Booths would go on. Seven days. And on the last day of the feast, on the greatest day, the priests who had been going every day to the Pool of Siloam, which is the one highlighted in chapter 5 of John's Gospel, where the crippled man was there at the pool waiting to be healed, they would go with a golden pitcher and dip water out of that pool. And they would march in a parade back to the temple in Jerusalem, and they would march around the altar as they would sing Psalms 113, 114, 15, 16, 17, and 18. They would sing the Hallel Psalms. We read Psalm 117. That was just a sovereign act of God's goodness to say that David chose that as our call to worship. 
Psalm 117, the Hallel Psalm, they would sing these, and when they got to the, the crescendo, the highest point, Psalm 118, then the priest would pour out the water at the altar and the wine from the sacrifice. And it was an outpouring, a show of, of, of blessing that God comes to meet his thirsty people and provide sacrifice for their sins and satisfaction for their souls. It would remind the people of Israel of their history, that in the desert they were thirsty. And God met them with water from the rock, from a hard place. We find ourselves in hard places, impossible places, in the desert. And God says, strike the rock, Moses, and water will flow. And all the people, and even the animals, can drink to their soul's delight. And, and so as the, the priest would pour the waters out on this feast of booths, the last day of the feast, the people would see the image and they would think, God is pouring out himself to, to satisfy us. It's, it's like a fire hydrant. I don't know if you've been around the neighborhood long or seen your own neighborhood, but sometimes in the summertime, when it gets really hot and the air conditioning in the window breaks, or you don't have air conditioning in your apartment, you know, somebody gets out the pipe wrench and they go down the block and what do they do? They get the pipe wrench, they put a big long pipe on it for leverage and they open up the fire hydrant and out comes the water. And everybody's water pressure on the block just goes to nothing. You can't take a shower anymore. But at least it's fun for the kids. They get to play around and splash in the water until someone calls 311 and here comes the fire department and they close it back up. Or sometimes they might open them up to release pressure and then it's a free time to play in the water. Just imagine the water pouring and gushing out of a fire hydrant, flooding the streets. This is what God did for his people in the desert. The hot burning sands like the hot asphalt and concrete of our city just being flooded with water to refresh the thirsty soul. Streams of water, pools and springs in the middle of the desert. That was the word of the Lord and the promise that he would give. This is the history of the people of Israel. And this is what they celebrated on this great day of the feast. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah is a prophet. He was helping the people rebuild their relationship with God through rediscovering the word of God. You guys know what Nehemiah did? He rebuilt, rebuilt the city walls. He took a broken down city and he rebuilt it so that God could be praised again and the people could be safe in the city once again. A great book for those of us that live in the city to read and understand. And Nehemiah 9, 15, and then verses 19 through 20, tell us that the giving of the manna, the bread, and the, and the giving of the water in the desert to feed and, and satisfy the hungry Israelites as they, they wandered for 40 years, that those giving of manna and water were just a symbol of God giving his spirit and word. He says, you gave them the manna, you gave them the water, and you gave them your good spirit to instruct them. Now let's read the law together and be satisfied. It's just like hungry, thirsty people in the desert. They're all standing around Nehemiah and he says, I'm going to satisfy you now. The spirit of God has given us the word of God to instruct us, to satisfy our souls. That was the history of the people. And they're celebrating it at the Feast of Booths. And Jesus says, if you're thirsty today and watching this pageantry and this procession, this ritual of water being poured out, reminded of all the good things of God, come to me, he says. Come to me. I'm the rock. I'm the manna. I'm the living bread. I'm the living water. I will satisfy you, my brothers and my sisters. Let's look secondly at the prophecy that comes from this. The prophecy for thirsty people. Jesus says on the last day of the feast, Come to me and drink, if you're thirsty. And he says in verse 38, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, as the scripture has said, as the scripture has said, which scripture? Well, he doesn't say. There are many that we could choose from that say something like this. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Living water. 
many prophecies about living water flowing for the people of God and in the people of God. The Messiah was to come. He was the Messiah. He was the chosen one, the anointed one, the king, the Savior. He would come one day and pour out his spirit in the last days, the prophets told us, bringing what the Bible calls the latter rain, which is like a harvest imagery of, of the late rains that would come and, and help the crops to grow and to be satisfied after a dry season. Zechariah 14 is actually, um, I, I just feel always kind of like Zion's going to correct me afterwards because he's our Jewish brother that knows the, the, the Jewish scripture. I feel just judged even because he's in the room right now, but that's okay. Um, he's probably to correct me on this, but from what I understand, Zechariah chapter 14, one of those last prophets of the Old Testament, Zechariah 14 was read on the first day of the Feast of Booths. Can I get an amen or can I get a, we'll talk later? Amen. amen. Now I can really preach. Okay, I've been holding back, but here it comes. On the, the, the first day of the feast, Zechariah 14 was read, and this is what it says in verse 8. On that day, very critical theological phrase there, that's when the Messiah comes back, that's when judgment happens and salvation breaks into this world. On that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem. In verse 16, from all the nations, year after year, the nations will go up to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. Really? We're supposed to keep the feast of booths? Not just Israelites, not just in Jerusalem, no. All nations, year after year, will keep the feast of booths. And waters, living waters, will flow out of Jerusalem. And in verse 17, if any of the families of the earth, not just the Jews, but if any of us, any who come from any tribe, tongue, or nation, any of the families of the earth, do not go up to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, no rain will fall on them. There won't be any latter rains for them. They won't be satisfied and refreshed. They will keep thirsting and seeking and not finding what their soul really needs. Zechariah 13, verse 1 says, On that day, there it is again, on that day, a fountain shall be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Do you see what Jesus is saying? If you're thirsty, if you're a sinner, if you're looking in all the wrong places for love and for satisfaction, come to me and living waters will flow to you, in you, and through you. Then he says something about the geography or the sociology of thirsty people. Let's look at that next in verse 37. The geography. Where are these people coming from that can come to Jesus? Who are they? What types of people are they? Socially. Well, he says in verse 37, anyone, if anyone thirsts, <clears throat> let me ask you again, do you ever thirst for more than just water? Do you ever thirst for significant love, meaning in your life? If you thirst, he says, come to me and drink. He says in verse 38, if you believe in me, whoever, whoever, if you, whoever you are, believe in me, then out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Anyone, whoever. I mean, this is wide open. This is not just talking to Jews. This is including talking to the people who came to him to arrest him. You know what they said? Send them to arrest Jesus. Okay, we're going. We're going to arrest Jesus. What did they say? We're here to arrest you. Jesus said what? Come to me. I know you're thirsty. Come to me. You who are coming to arrest the, the, the cops, come to me. You want to... Come to me. I know you're thirsty. And I'll give you water. They're like, what? We can't arrest this guy. Like, I don't know what he's on or what he's talking about. But they left and didn't arrest him. Okay. I don't think I'm reading too much into the text to say that Jesus opened this offer to his enemies. 
who are literally coming to arrest him this day, if you thirst, come to me now and I will satisfy you. Is that how you act towards your enemies? Very disarming. Very humble. Very gracious. It's a love we don't have in ourselves. But if you come to him, he will give you that sort of love. And that will flow like waters from you to the, those around you. Verse 35 and 36, we didn't read them yet, but the context immediately before our text today, the, the Jews said to one another, uh, where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He said, I'm going to go somewhere and you're not going to be able to find me there. Where is he going? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? That means our Jewish brothers and sisters that have gone out into the world, they're living in other countries now, they're dispersed. Is that where he intends to go? They've been sown like seeds in the nations. God has, has cast them like seeds among the nations. Is he going to go and preach the, this message to them? Or, they say, among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. Is, is this Messiah, this prophet, this Jesus, is he going to go teach among the Jews out there in the world or even the Greeks, the Gentiles? What an ironic question. Because now he's saying if anyone would come to me, everyone could come. Whoever believes in me, and certainly the pattern of the gospel spreading would be that the disciples who were Jewish went into the whole world, starting in Jerusalem and then around Judea, the area around there, and then Samaria in the north and into the ends of the earth. It's wide open. Geographically and sociologically, we're being taught that whether you're rich or poor, old or young, male or female, no matter your gender, religion, age, ability, or disability, even the enemies of Jesus were welcome to come to him. He says, I know you want to look in the, the Buddhist book, the Hindu scriptures, the Quran, perhaps, the academic references on your shelf. I know you're trying to find meaning on the internet, in satisfaction, on social media, and whatever you're looking, relationships, your work, your addictions, whatever these are, you're looking, you're looking, you're looking, but he says, anyone, whatever your need, whatever your thirst, whatever your addiction, whatever your pain, come to me and drink. You can be Republican, you can be Democrat, you can be Libertarian or Independent. You can be communist or socialist. Jesus says, all of you, come to me and drink. You could be LGBTQ+, ETC, ETC, ETC. You could be GD or BD. Some of y'all don't know what that means. Somebody help me out on this. Come on. We're talking about gangs here. We're talking about, you could be, you could be PhD or GED. Jesus says, come to me. All of you, whoever you are, everyone thirsts. All may come. Then he teaches us something about the theology of the satisfying spirit and savior that he is. Verse 40. Up until this point, we read, the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What does that mean? It means, well, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross and given his life as a ransom for the sins of many. Jesus had not paid the price for his people and substituting himself for them. He had not died in three days, been risen from the dead, and then ascended and glorified at the right hand of the Father. This had not happened. When it would, he would do what he promised and what the prophecies of old had said. He would pour out his spirit on the dry and thirsty ground. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, chapter 2. The gift of the spirit was given. The prophecy was fulfilled. But at this point, in this part of the story, John 7, this had not happened yet, and so... Up until this point, 
the Holy Spirit had only come in pictorial form or upon the temple in a glory cloud and then he departed from the Jerusalem temple and gone away. But God promised, I will send my spirit back to you, my people, and you will be filled and I will change your hearts and dwell within you and then you will go into the nations and my spirit will go with you everywhere you go to thirsty people. The theology of our satisfying Savior and Spirit was prophesied in places like Ezekiel 47. That a beautiful picture of the Jewish temple which had been destroyed and abandoned. The glory had departed. And yet he gives his people a tantalizing vision of things to come. He says, there will be a river that flows from Jerusalem. This doesn't actually exist. There's no river flowing out of the Jerusalem temple. But he says, I will give you a river. It will flow from the temple, and it will just pour out of the gate. And he says, you're going to wade out into it. You're going to take a step, and it's going to be an inch deep. And you're going to say, what an amazing, miraculous river flowing. And then you're going to step a little deeper. It's going to be me deep. And you say, wow, it's, it's a stronger current. And then you're going to get way deep in the river that's flowing from the temple. And then you're going to go, it's going to sweep you away because it's going to be so full and satisfying and quenching. And he says, whatever touches the waters of this river will live. It will teem with life in the desert. A river will flow from God's holy presence and everything that touches it will live. Living waters. The Holy Spirit is what John is talking about. Verse 39 says, what Jesus was talking about was the Spirit. These living waters. The Spirit will be poured out and give life to many. The Holy Spirit comes into the life of those who come to Jesus. We come empty. We come thirsty. And we say, Jesus, fill me. And he gives us his own personal presence, his own spirit. And he changes our hearts. He turns our hearts from stone and cold and unmoving and unyielding into soft, loving, beating hearts that say, I'm here to do your will, Father. I love you. Thank you for first loving me. And then he gives us in the Holy Spirit sanctification. He changes us. He transforms us. He cleans us and purifies us. He works us over. And He works us down until we're more like Jesus. He's satisfying us. This Holy Spirit that is poured out from on high. He begins to give us new desires. Romans 5 says, the love of God. He pours out His Spirit into our hearts and gives us love and joy and peace and hope. He's pouring out into us affections and delights and desires that the world can't touch, the world can't provide. And he's giving us fruit. He's helping us to change into the image of Jesus. Like our summer camp wrap, what's it say? The fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus. This is what the Spirit of God does when he comes. He does a radical, comprehensive work in the life of the Christian. He's helping us to be more like Jesus, and that's the last thing we're, we're going to see from this, is that he, he teaches us something about the mission of the satisfied soul. As he says, come to me. Come to me and be satisfied. I'm, I'm also sending you on mission. When your soul touches the, the living waters, he sends you on mission. Did you know that, Richard? He's coming not just for you, but through you to others. I know you know that, AJ. Right? But that's why you moved here, to study about helping others through social action and justice. And that's what he's talking about here in, in verse 38. Streams of living water will flow out of his heart. Whose heart? The believer's heart? Or the Messiah's heart? Both, I would say. I mean, 
Verse 39. The Spirit had not yet been given. Who's going to give us the Spirit? Jesus. He's going to pour His Spirit, pour His water, His living water into us. And then, out of His heart will flow living water. Doesn't the living water also flow out of us to others? Are we called to share the bread of life and the living waters with those around us? Isaiah 58 says it like that. Verse 11. When you help others who have physical needs and spiritual needs and emotional needs, relationally, when you help others on this Sabbath day, Isaiah 58 is about the true Sabbath and the true fast. How do you do true religion? It's this. You receive the living waters and you share them with others. Isaiah 58, 11. You will be like a well-watered garden. An irrigated garden. With sprinklers. You know, just watering all day long. You will be like that fresh garden. Dew in the morning, a sprinkler, irrigation throughout the day, and you'll constantly be bearing fruit. Like a spring whose waters never fail. A spring just keeps giving and giving and sending waters over. You will be like this, God says, if you serve my people with mercy and with justice. This is the mission of the church. I'm going to refresh your soul and give to you so that you can pour out and give to others. When the Spanish were sending those ships to the Americans, those conquistadores, you know, colonialists that they were, right? Going to take the gold from other lands and satisfy their kingdom and their build their empires and fund their wars. When, when they were sending their ships, the Spanish, one ship came to the salty waters of the Atlantic, made the long journey, and the sailors aboard ran out of fresh water to drink. And as the, the, the dead winds did not carry them very quickly into inland, they began to die of thirst. They began to be parched, and there was only salt water left to drink, and they can't drink that. Obviously, you'll die with salt water. And so the crew of the ship, literally dying of thirst, weeks on end without water, were crying out, and then a, a ship came on the horizon, a Peruvian ship you know, from South America. And they knew the waters, and they called out to this other ship, and they said, we are dying of thirst. Do you have any waters to drink? And they said, you know, put down your buckets in the water. And drink. And they're like, no, salt water will die. We can't do this. The Peruvian said, put your buckets down. You're at the, the mouth of the Amazon River pouring its fresh waters into the Atlantic Ocean. The waters are good here. You're, you're sailing around on these waters, dying of thirst, where right underneath, within reach, there's living waters. There's fresh waters that will give you life for your soul, for your body, for your relationships. Brothers and sisters, do you feel a thirst for something more than just success? Do you feel a, a, a thirst for something more than just that hormonal surge that you get when you click on porn? Do you, do you feel a, a thirst for something more than just a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife to meet your needs? Do you feel something deeper than that that only God can satisfy? I'm just asking you to, to come to Jesus, to put your bucket in the water, to draw the water from the wells of eternal life, to taste of Him and see that He's good, be satisfying. He'll quench your thirst, He'll satisfy your soul, He'll save you from death itself. He's within reach. Anyone may come. Whoever believes and comes and drinks will live. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Let's pray. Lord, you say through your prophet Isaiah, if anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and I will give him waters and I will give him bread. I will give him wine and milk without money, without cost. 
Lord, I hope I haven't said anything today. And if I have, I would correct it right now by reminding us that nothing in this offer costs us anything. What we bring to you, God, is thirst, emptiness, and need. And what you bring is everything we need. You bring the joy and the love and the hope and the life and the peace. You bring the forgiveness and the cleansing of sin and the satisfaction of the deepest needs within us. This is the good news that anyone who comes empty, thirsty, and hungry may live on the bread of life and in the waters of life that you provide, Jesus Christ. Revelation 21 says, To the thirsty I give from the spring of the water of life without any payment. Because you paid it all, Jesus. You purchased our salvation with your death on the cross. You poured out gloriously in your resurrection and your rule, your Holy Spirit. You poured out your own self into our lives, into the church. Lord, we've gotten a history lesson. We've gotten a geography lesson, a sociology lesson. We've gotten some theology, and now we're on mission. We want to go, and we want to share this news and share this gift of free life with the world. Empower us, your church, we pray, to do just that. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Stand and receive grace as God reminds us that He is good, that He is gracious, and that this is the message we both receive and take to the world. Lord, You are good, and Your mercies, like a spring of water, endure forever, day after day. Let's sing that together. Brothers and sisters.